0: Hello and welcome to episode 131 of the Bit Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Bidemir Lugunde. On this episode, I'll be discussing the consequences of Russia's plans to insulate its economy from Western financial pressure by building an autonomous domestic payment system and a sovereign internet. I wrapped up with an update on a suspected Russian attack on a major internet and telecommunications service provider in Ukraine. Thank you for your time, let's get to it. Okay, so Western sanctions have disrupted nearly every part of Russia's financial system, but there seems to be a major exception. The domestic payment system continued to work smoothly even after Visa and Mastercard pulled out of the Russian economy earlier in March. So while the card giant's exit from Russia was viewed as a significant move by many people in the West, the reality on the ground was anything but substantial. Most Russian consumers never lost the ability to use their MasterCard and Visa-branded cards to pay for goods and services within Russia. So as of the end of 2020, there were approximately 197 million MasterCard or Visa cards in Russia, And this is according to the Nielsen reports, which is a trade publication. However, behind the scenes, those cards don't rely on American systems to process payments in Russia. They've used a homegrown system that is overseen by Russia's central bank for several years. So this system is known as the National Payment Card System, which is known by its Russian initials NSPK and it runs the financial plumbing that basically underpins card transactions in Russia, even for cards bearing Visa and MasterCard logos. The system was part of the Russian government's eight-year efforts to insulate the Russian economy from Western financial pressure because over the years, Russia keeps getting sanctioned one way or the other because of things they do in the global economic system. So the Russian government has also aggressively promoted Russia's own card company, known as Mir M I R, which is built on NSPK's infrastructure. According to Mir's website, more than 100 million Mir cards have been issued since it was launched back in 2015. So the resilience of Russia's payment system is a rare win for President Putin in his ongoing financial war with the West. Russia has failed to break its dependence on Western imports, which leaves the country in dire need of critical parts for manufacturing. Before the war, Russia amassed $630 billion in foreign reserves to ensure that it could protect the ruble. However, that effort was undermined on February 28th when the US and European Union blocked Russia's central bank from selling dollars, euros, and other foreign currencies in its emergency reserve stockpile in attempt to stabilize the Russian ruble. Meanwhile, the exit of Visa and MasterCard did have one significant consequence for Russians. In many cases, their cards now don't work outside the country. The Mir network extends only to a few countries besides Russia, and most of them are former Soviet republics. Russian officials have been in talks recently to expand it to Venezuela and Iran, and this is according to reports from the TASS state news agency. Some Russian banks have said that they are exploring partnerships with China's Union Pay to issue more cards that their customers can use in more places. Regardless, Russia's inability to use their cards to withdraw cash or make purchases abroad is aligned with the Russian government's goal to keep assets within Russia. Some Russians who have fled their country have said that Visa and MasterCard's exits actually played into President Putin's hands. So during a call to discuss potential Russia sanctions in February, The executives from Visa, Mastercard, and other payment companies in the U.S. told U.S. Treasury Department officials that banning U.S. financial system networks from handling Russian bank transactions will only lead to more transactions being processed on Russia's Mir network. More countries have developed their own payment infrastructure therefore limiting the clout of Visa and MasterCard and, by extension, the ability of the U.S. to influence countries' behavior through sanctions that target their banking systems. China's state-owned UnionPay handles most domestic transactions on cards issued by Chinese banks. Turkey and India started their own networks um, in recent years to win the country's banks off Visa and MasterCard's. Russia tried to reduce its vulnerability to Western financial pressure after being stung by sanctions over its 2014 annexation of Crimea. Visa and MasterCard at the time accounted for nearly all card network activity in Russia. Their networks serve as a link between merchants and banks that issue debit and credit cards and they handle the routing of card transactions. In March of 2014, Hundreds of thousands of Russians discovered that their cards had been rendered useless overnight. U.S. sanctions over Crimea had prompted Visa and MasterCard to block services to central banks um, linked to associates of Russia's President Putin. For Russian officials, the move highlighted a vulnerability. Within months, President Putin signed a law establishing NSPK a later amendment to the law effectively forced Visa and MasterCard to transfer the processing of transactions to NSPK. At first, the two U.S. companies opposed the law and suggested that they might leave Russia. However, by early 2015, both companies, Visa and MasterCard, had agreed to use NSPK's system. So later in 2015, NSPK launched Mir, and the name means both world and peace in Russia. It was chosen after an internet naming contest in which some of the rejected alternatives were Kometa, which means Comet, and Patriot. So initially, Russians saw little reason to swap their Visa and MasterCard branded cards for cards. However, in 2017, Russia passed a law... Requiring banks that handle pensioners, payments, and salaries of public sector employees, such as teachers and military personnel, to make those funds available through MIR cards. MIR usage surged and with card issuance rising to 95 million by the end of 2020 from about 2 million in 2016, according to NSPK. The law also mandated that MIR be accepted at point of sale terminals that many merchants use. So NSPK invested heavily in marketing mirror. They sponsored the Russian national soccer team and they promoted incentives such as cashback programs. And by taking over payment processing, NSPK became a money maker for Russia's central bank, collecting fee revenue that otherwise would have flowed to Visa and MasterCard. In 2020, the payment system earned 8.2 billion rubles in net profits, which was about $94 million Um, And that's according to the annual report from NSPK. The issuance of Mir cards has boomed in recent weeks after the exits of Visa and MasterCard from the Russian system. Russian lender Rosbank has reported that demand for debit cards that run on Mir's network more than doubled between January and March from the same period in 2021. So up next, I'll discuss Russia's ongoing plans to build a sovereign internet system and the potential consequences of such a system. Stay with us. Welcome back. So on March 6th, The Russian government ordered all government institutions and the internet service providers, ISPs, servicing them to switch to the Russian domain name servers by March 11. So on March 11, the Russian government set up its certificate authority to issue TLS certificates to Russians who are affected by sanctions or otherwise punished for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what I mean by TLS certificate is basically transport layer security certificates. So these are digital certificates that secure internet connections by encrypting the data sent between users' browsers like Chrome, Internet Explorer, and so on. And then the websites those users are visiting and the website server that is returning the content being viewed online. So basically, these digital certificates verify that the website you are visiting is valid, it's legitimate. So it communicates from your own browser to the server of the website you are visiting to ensure that you are basically browsing in a secure environment. So TLS is widely used in online applications such as email, instant messaging, and internet voice calls. So, a notice on Lugi, which is Russia's Unified Public Service Portal, states that the TLS certificate will be made available to all legal entities operating in Russia that cannot obtain or renew foreign TLS certificates due to the ongoing sanctions. Furthermore, the notice stated that the custom TLS certificates would be delivered to site owners upon request within five working days. The Russian government portal did not indicate which browsers would accept the Russian certificates and this is crucial because a secure connection is not generally possible if browsers don't recognize or trust the certificate authority that issued a certificate. So something to note is that it is relatively easy for Russian intelligence and security agencies to intercept, decrypt, and snoop on connections encrypted using TLS certificates that are issued by the Russian government. The more websites running Russia-issued certificates, the more connections that can be intercepted and monitored. So interestingly, this move to require Russian companies to switch to state-owned internet infrastructure is guaranteed to cause some disruptions, which have already started happening. For instance, on March 28th, in what could be described as an accident or an attempted hijack, rtcom.ru, which is a Russian telecom service provider, advertised itself as the destination for internet traffic that was meant for Twitter for over two hours fortunately twitter uses a protection mechanism called resource public key infrastructure rpki route authorization so therefore the incident did not cause significant disruptions so that incident is basically what is known as a bgp hijack which is when hackers maliciously reroute internet traffic by falsely announcing the ownership of groups of ip addresses that they do not own groups of IP addresses that they do not control or even route to. So they do this by corrupting internet routing tables maintained using the Border Gateway Protocol, BGP, hence the name BGP hijacking. So a good analogy is if someone who is up to no good were to change all the signs on a stretch of highway and then reroute vehicle traffic onto incorrect exits. So if you're supposed to take exits... 25 to your house but then the sign says exit 28 so then you go to the exit 25 that has been renamed and it takes you to somewhere else so something like that so while bgp hijacks can disrupt networks or intercept traffic most of those events are accidents such as when telstra which is australia's largest telecommunications company announced itself as the best route for about 500 other networks back in 2020. In 2021, an ISP trying to block access to Twitter in Myanmar ended up hijacking this same range of Twitter IP addresses that were caught up in the incident on March 28 and with a similar outcome. Back in 2008, YouTube became unavailable to the entire internet following a change that an ISP in Pakistan made to BGP routing tables. So that ISP was trying to block YouTube inside Pakistan but was not careful in implementing that change. So hijacking a BGP prefix is one way to block access but it can also be used to intercept traffic that is meant for other destinations. So according to the US FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, Russian network operators have been suspected of exploiting BGP's vulnerability to hijacking, including traffic being redirected through Russia for no apparent reason. For example, on February 28, security researchers found evidence of BGP hijacking attacks that intentionally rerouted massive amounts of internet traffic from Ukraine, including calls, text messages, and possible geolocations for military targeting operations. So that BGP hijack lasted for approximately 3 hours and 30 minutes. Also, in late 2017, traffic sent to and from Google, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft was briefly routed through an ISP in Russia. That same year, traffic from several financial institutions, including Visa, MasterCard, and others, was also routed through a Russian government-controlled telecoms company under unexplained circumstances. So in 2013, researchers revealed that vast chunks of internet traffic that belonged to US-based financial institutions, government agencies, and network service providers had repeatedly been diverted to distant locations in Russia. The unexplained circumstances stoked suspicions that network engineers in Russia intentionally rerouted traffic so that the Russian government could secretly monitor communications before passing it along to its destination. So up next, I'll provide an update on a recent attack on a major internet and telecom service provider in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome back. So on Monday, March 28th, a Ukrainian internet service provider used by the country's military, suffered a massive cyber attack, fueling fears that Russia intends to wield more dangerous digital weapons as the ongoing war drags into its second month. Some experts describe the attack on Ukraite Telecom, PJSC, as among the most harmful cyber attacks since the Russian invasion of Ukraine began on February 24. Ukrtelecom's telecom's ability to connect to the internet to provide services to customers began dropping around 5 a.m eastern time and then gradually fell off throughout the day on march 28. within five hours the company was almost entirely offline so after the attack began the company started limiting service to most of its business and consumer customers to preserve capacity for its military customers The company acknowledged service outages in a post on its Facebook page on March 28th and then said it was working to restore stable service as soon as possible. The disruption was confirmed by multiple groups that monitor internet traffic. So one of them is Netblocks, which is an internet observatory that has tracked previous outages in Ukraine. And Netblocks said on its Twitter account that network data showed, quote, an ongoing and intensifying nation-scale disruption to service, which is the most severe registered since the invasion by Russia. So at about 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time on March 28, Ukrainian officials said they had repelled the attack. And that the company could restore services. And that's according to a statement from Ukraine state service of special communication and information protection, which is responsible for cybersecurity in Ukraine. So the Ukrainian cyber agency statement did not say who was responsible for the cyber attack. Security experts have noted that Russia linked hackers have launched a variety of cyber attacks against financial services companies internet service providers, and government agencies since February, in the run-up to the February 24 invasion and afterwards. And of course, Russia has denied any involvement in any cyber attacks. So cybersecurity experts and US officials have been actually surprised by the lack of major disruptive or destructive cyber attacks during the ongoing Ukraine conflict. As Russia is widely believed to have some of the most capable state sponsored hacking groups in the world. And Russia has previously been blamed for launching cyber attacks that disrupted Ukraine's government's electricity grid and financial services. So far, malicious cyber activities have been mainly confined to internet service disruptions, defacement of websites, and generally limited deployment of so called wiper malware which can basically destroy computer files. However, US officials have grown increasingly concerned that Russia could lash out either in Ukraine or against Western countries in response to its struggles on the battlefield and the impacts of the punishing sanctions that the US and Europe have enacted. On March 21, US President Biden said, evolving intelligence suggested that Russia was exploring options to target the U.S. with cyber attacks. So that's all I have for this episode 131 of the Beat Picture Podcast. Thanks for listening. Big Picture Podcast is produced by Sunshine Media in association with Alowinli Productions, fact-checking by Zara Kuznetiova, audio engineer Sergei Goski, Graphic Design Stacey Graham, Senior Producer Abidemio Executive Producers Olifolari and Toby Lobo Please join me again on the next episode as I continue with a deep dive on cybersecurity's news, events and incidents and the lessons we can learn from them for robust cyber threat, intelligence and awareness in our daily lives. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review The Beat Picture Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, Pandora, TuneIn Radio, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, please share the show with anyone that you think might benefit from it. For questions, comments, or any suggestions, please send an email to bdemy at thebeatpicture.com. You can also get in touch on Twitter at BidPicture, on the Clubhouse app at Bid, as well as on the Wisdom app at Bidemy. Please remember to leave a review for the podcast if your platform allows you to do so. Thank you for your time. See you on the next episode. Bye for now.